All right. So we have reached the third week in our series on the book of Daniel. And this week we're going to be looking at the last part of Nebuchadnezzar's story. Nebuchadnezzar, if you've been following over the last couple weeks, he's the kind of character that you encounter in some movies and TV shows, uh, the kind of character that at first you think is just a villain through and through. But then over time, you realize that he's a little bit more complex than that. And you don't really like him, but you can't totally hate him either. Uh, let's start with a quick review of what we know about Nebuchadnezzar so far. So he is the king of Babylon, and uh, Daniel's story starts with him attacking Jerusalem, right? And when he attacks Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar does two very villainous things. The first thing he does is he plunders items from the temple in Jerusalem, the holy, sacred temple of Israel's God. He takes articles out of that, and he brings that to ba- those articles to Babylon, and he puts them in the temple of his God, which is a way of saying, my God is better than your God. And then the second really villainous thing he does is he takes many young Israelite men without their consent uh, from their families, and he brings them to Babylon. And he forces them to have new names. Uh, He forces them to learn the culture and the language of Babylon. Basically, what he does is a forced assimilation program. I personally would also describe Nebuchadnezzar with the following four words. Impulsive, insecure, short-tempered, and cruel. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you might remember that in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he thinks that this dream is a message, but he doesn't know what it means, and so he's very anxious about figuring out what is the meaning of this dream, and so he summons his magicians and astrologers and sorcerers to interpret the dream, but he's skeptical of their ability, and so he says, I want you to tell me what my dream was before you interpret it. And all the magicians and astrologers and sorcerers are like, nobody can do that. We can't do that. We can't read your mind. And his response to that is to get so angry that he orders all of these people to be executed. He orders the execution, all the magicians, sorcerers, and astrologers in Babylon. Very impulsive, very insecure, very short-tempered, very cruel, right? He seems like a, a loathsome villain through and through. But before that decree can be carried out, Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him his dream, and he tells him what it means. Daniel, through the power of God, has been given the ability to know this information. And Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed that he falls down before Daniel, and he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. So, Is Nebuchadnezzar the villain? Now we're not so sure, right? Because now he's recognizing that Israel's God is the God of gods, which is a big deal because that God is the God whose temple he plundered and whose people he stole and whose city he attacked, right? And not only that, but then Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel and his friends leaders over the province in Babylon. So maybe Nebuchadnezzar is not a villain through and through. But then last week, we looked at chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have forgotten all about this, right? Because uh, 
chapter 3 starts with Nebuchadnezzar making this image of gold, and he demands that everybody in the kingdom bow down and worship this image. And he declares that whoever does not worship it will get thrown into a burning furnace, be burned alive. But then he's told that several Jews in the kingdom, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are refusing to bow down to this statue. So what does he do? Does he say, oh, Israel's God? Well, that's the God of gods, so don't bother them. No, he gets furious. It says he is furious with rage, and he orders that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego get thrown into the furnace. So once again, Nebuchadnezzar is back to being the loathsome villain, right? Impulsive, insecure, short-tempered, cruel. But then the men are thrown into the fire, and they miraculously survive. We're told not a hair on their heads is singed. Miraculously, God intervenes to protect them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, huh, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he changes his whole policy. Now, instead of saying that people who don't bow down to the statue have to be thrown into a burning furnace, he says, therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. So unfortunately, he's still displaying that impulsive cruelty, right? But at least he's acknowledging, once again, that Israel's God deserves honor. And not only that, but once again, he promotes these Jews to a high position of authority in Babylon. So this is where we left off last week. Where we left off last week, Nebuchadnezzar as a character is a mixed bag, right? We don't necessarily like him, but we still have some hope for him, right? There are signs that he's not completely a lost cause. So, how is Nebuchadnezzar's story going to end? What's going to happen to him? Well, we're about to find out, and I would say there's an important lesson for us in this story. So, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 4, and you can kind of start making your way to uh, verse 19. Uh, but before I read, I just set the stage a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream, another dream that needs interpretation. And so he calls on Daniel and he describes this dream to him. He says that in the dream he sees this beautiful tree uh, with abundant fruit that's giving shade and shelter to animals, and then that tree is cut down by someone that he refers to as a holy one. And we'll get some more details of the dream in Daniel's interpretation, but if you want to follow along, uh, Daniel's interpretation of the dream starts in the second half of uh, verse 19, chapter 4. Belshazzar answered, and remember, Belshazzar is Daniel. That's Daniel's Babylonian name that was forced upon him. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. 
You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So, just in case you didn't follow that, okay, Daniel's interpretation of the dream is this. Soon, Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his position, and apparently even his mind. Okay, he's going to become like an animal. And this state is going to continue until Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that God is the one who's really in charge. And Daniel suggests that maybe, just maybe, this can be avoided if Nebuchadnezzar changes his ways now. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Okay, continuing in verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. So Daniel's interpretation of the dream came true, right? Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for a period of time. Uh, we don't know for sure what condition this was, but it, it appears that he suffered from some kind of mental illness, right, that led him to leave society and act like an animal and not take care of his hygiene. His hair grew out really long. His fingernails were like the claws of a bird, you know, kind of like Howard Hughes or something like that. He just, he lost it. And he lost not only his kingliness, but he lost his humanity. Too. Now, what causes this humiliating judgment to come upon Nebuchadnezzar? The straw that breaks the camel's back is a few simple words. Let's go back to them. 
he said as he was admiring the palace, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, am I not the man? Right? Am I not the man? Nebuchadnezzar sees the glory of Babylon as by him and for him. By him and for him. And that tells us something. You know, even though Nebuchadnezzar said Yahweh is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, he still doesn't really think that in his heart. Right? In his heart, practically speaking, the God of gods is himself. Right? Why is it that in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar can say that? Your God is the God of gods, but in chapter 3, he says, you've got to bow down to my statue or I'll throw you in a furnace. It's kind of a disjunction there, right? It's because despite what he says in chapter 2, he still sees himself as supreme, right? He sees obedience to him as the most important thing, not obedience to any other God. The words that he spoke in chapter 2 have not moved from the head to the heart. And that is not uncommon at all. <laughs> right? Many people will say, Jesus is Lord, but in their lives they still live as if they are Lord. Right? Many people will say, Jesus is the true center of everything. Jesus is the true center of the universe, but they live as if they are the center of the universe. Now, I think the judgment that Nebuchadnezzar suffers here should serve as an example for us. You know, as far as God is concerned, pride is actually a really big deal. It's not, it's not a minor thing. Pride might even be what we should consider the root of all sin. It's a big deal. So Nebuchadnezzar sees the glory of Babylon. He sees all of it as for him and by him. And even though we are not kings in the ancient world, like Nebuchadnezzar, we can still end up adopting a very similar attitude to him. So let's talk about seeing things as by us. What does that mean? This is the attitude that sees every good thing in our lives as a result of our effort, our resourcefulness, our talents, and our plans. I remember when I was in college, there was a student who used to help lead worship at one of the campus ministries sometimes. And he did this for a while, and then he quit. And before he quit, he told a lot of people why he was quitting. And the reason he gave was interesting. He said, I, I've realized, you know, whatever I want in life, I'll just work for it to get it. I don't need God's help. So I'm not interested in being a Christian anymore. Now, can I just say, that's a terrible reason. <laughs> to leave the faith, because it actually has nothing to do with the question of whether or not Christianity is actually true, right? It has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus is Lord, nothing to do with whether Jesus deserves our allegiance. His decision was what I would call strictly utilitarian, right? He thought, there's certain things that I want in life. How am I going to get them? Will Jesus help me get them? Eh, I don't know if he will. So I think I'll just get it all on my own strength, right? And he concluded, whatever good is coming my way in my life, it's coming through my own mighty power. That student had an attitude like Nebuchadnezzar. But 
a little bit of reflection should make it obvious to us how incredibly misguided that kind of thinking is. Because if we're totally honest, right, we cannot deny that so many aspects of our lives are outside of our control. So many things, right? We don't decide where we're born. We don't decide who our parents are. We don't decide what our genetics are. We don't decide whether we get a life-threatening disease or not. We don't decide whether we're handicapped or not. We don't decide whether we're naturally good at music or athletics or math, right? All of that and so much more is completely outside of our control. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to preach fatalism. <laughs> there are things in our lives that are under our control. There are things that we can influence. God has given us some power to steward our lives, and we are responsible for what we do with that, right? And it's good for us when we steward that power well to take some satisfaction in a job well done. But here's the thing that we have to realize, and here's the thing that Nebuchadnezzar definitely did not realize. If we had a two-sided scale, and on one side we put every aspect of our lives that we have control over, and on the other side we put every aspect of our lives that we don't have control over, it's pretty clear which direction the scale would tip, if we're honest, right? And if you think it's not clear, let me ask a few questions. Who decides the physical laws of the universe? Who decides what temperature water boils at and what temperature it freezes at? Who decides what temperature your skin burns at? Who decides which seeds will grow and which kind of dirt? It's not us that decides those things, right? You know, even if we make the most of the raw material that God gives us, we can't take credit for the raw material itself. Uh, I heard a joke that I think illustrates this pretty well. It goes something like this. A scientist says to God, hey, we scientists have figured out how to make life from dirt, just like you do in Genesis. And God says, oh, really? Show me how you do that. So the scientist starts to gather some dirt, and just as He's about to start working on it. God interrupts him and he says, hey, hold on, get your own dirt. <laughs> See, we might be able to do some good things with the raw material that God gives us. We might be able to do some th good things with our bodies, our minds, our talents. But all those things are a gift. We're working with God's dirt, not our own, right? At the end of the day, most of what we have, we have received. Even something as fundamental as whether we keep living is to a large extent outside of our control. Sometimes when I'm lying still, I become conscious of my heartbeat and I feel this thing beating inside of me and I know if it stops, I'm dead, right? And then I realize I have never once consciously told my heart to beat. Have you ever done that? <laughs> I haven't done it. It does it, but it's not because I voluntarily tell it to, right? It beats because some part of my brain is programmed to send an electri electrical impulse to the muscles to make them contract, and I have no authority over that, right? 
It's outside of my control, and it is for all of us. Something as fundamental as life itself is really a gift. So you see why the scales tip in one direction, right? So much is outside of our control. You know, and we're reliant not just on God, but also on each other. Imagine if you decided, you know what, I am going to be the quintessential loner. I am resolved to do everything without any help from any other human being. What would you be able to do? Well, you can forget about using a computer, that's for sure, unless you built it yourself, and good luck with that, right? I know every now and then I'll hear someone say, I built my own computer. And I always think, yeah, sure you did. You, engin you engineered your own microchips and you know, shaped the glass into the screen. <laughs> no, what you mean is you bought some parts online, right? Amazon is run by people. <laughs> Those parts were designed by people. Now that's better than I can do. I probably couldn't even put the parts together. but. <laughs> but you're still relying on other people to help you get the job done. You are not doing things from scratch. If you resolve to do everything without the help of any people, anyone else, you never drive on a road that you didn't pave, right? You never drive unless you made the car from scratch. You never even write down a note unless you produce the pencil and the paper. You would be so, so limited, so extraordinarily limited. Nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize how indebted he was to others. Uh, he looked at the glory of Babylon and he thought, I did all this. One of the things he was probably looking at was something called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It was regarded as one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. Now, Nebuchadnezzar might have had something to do with organizing and sustaining that project for the Hanging Gardens. But you can bet he wasn't the one with his hands in the dirt planting, right? Just, just as Pharaoh wasn't the one who was stacking the pyramids. And yet Nebuchadnezzar attributed this beauty to the, his mighty power, right? He saw himself as the cause of Babylon's glory. Not the slaves who toiled in the hot sun to, to build it. Not the God who created the raw material of the world and who governs the world, but him. And that's the kind of foolishness that we're all called to avoid. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in his interpretation of the dream that he needs to realize the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, I want us to be careful there. I don't think that Daniel's point here is that anybody who is in power has this huge endorsement from God, that God is just like, man, I just love everything this person is doing. But he's, what's happening here is God is speaking to someone in power, and he's saying to that person in power, you need to realize your power ultimately doesn't come from you, and you could lose it in a moment. You need to realize that you are accountable to somebody else for how you use your power. You are not supreme. That's the message here. You need to realize that the real source of every good thing is God. It's not you. 
So we have to ask ourselves, this is the kind of question that Nebuchadnezzar's story should inspire us to ask. Have I realized who's really in charge? Have I realized how limited my power actually is? Right? Am I humble enough to recognize how dependent I am on God and on other people for the good things in life? Or do I live in this prideful delusion that all of the good things in my life are ultimately my own doing? See, Nebuchadnezzar was stuck in that prideful delusion. And that pride was the cause of his villainous actions. You might have missed this, but did you notice that when Daniel, um, when Daniel was interpreting the dream, he recognizes a direct link between Nebuchadnezzar's pride and the oppression of the poor? Did you see that? Because at the same time that he tells Nebuchadnezzar that he needs to recognize that God is really the one in charge, he also says that if he renounces his wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, then he might be spared this judgment, right? So there's this direct link between the pride of a leader and the oppression of a people. So to summarize that, you might say, pride leads to oppression, but humility leads to freedom. Pride leads to oppression, but humility leads to freedom. A leader who is very, very prideful will eventually oppress the people. <clears throat> if we don't want to be the kind of people who create injustice, the first thing we need to do is to learn to see ourselves with humility. The first thing we need to do is recognize how dependent we are on God and on other people and how limited our control is and how little we can really take credit for. Now, God had to humble Nebuchadnezzar in a really dramatic way, right? <laughs> Lead him to be like an animal, right? Or allow him to be like an animal. But it appears that after that experience, he finally learned these things, right? He, he was finally humbled. And we're told that as he was in the midst of this illness, this mental illness, what he did was he raised his eyes to heaven, and then his sanity was restored. Now, what does that mean that he raised his eyes to heaven? It means that he finally took his eyes off of himself, right? He finally stopped seeing everything as by him and for him, right? He recognized that there is someone above him and he put his attention on him. And when he did that, not only was his mind restored, but his kingdom was restored. It was given back to him. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar's story ends. Nebuchadnezzar the villain ends up being Nebuchadnezzar the humbled, God-fearing king. And his final words in the book of Daniel are, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You know, I really think that the ending of Nebuchadnezzar's story should be this incredible reassurance for us, because even a man who attacked Jerusalem and stole sacred items from the temple and robbed uh, the, the, the city of God of its people, this villainous, insecure, impulsive, short-tempered, cruel person, this person who encouraged idol worship, even that person was able to repent. Think about that. 
no matter what we've done, we too can raise our eyes to heaven. No matter what we've done, we can do that. The question is, are we willing to let go of our pride and recognize who's really in charge? Are we willing to recognize who's really the source of all good things? That's where real repentance begins. And that's where sanity is restored. A world where nobody recognizes that truth, nobody has that kind of humility, is an insane world. <laughs> but sanity is restored when we start to recognize that truth. I'll end with Colossians 1.16. It says, For by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, like Nebuchadnezzar, or powers, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created, what? By him and for him. By him and for him. Not by and for Nebuchadnezzar, not by and for you, not by and for me, but by and for Jesus. The path to sanity starts with recognizing that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Learning humility is one of the hardest things for us to do. And it was certainly a hard lesson for Nebuchadnezzar. And I pray, God, that you would help us to learn from, from his example. God, you, you long for us to recognize the truth about who we are, not so that we can feel badly about ourselves, but so that we can be set free uh, pride is actually an incredible burden, Lord. It's an incredible burden on Nebuchadnezzar, and it's an incredible burden on any of us who try to see ourselves as God, Lord. It's not what we're made for. And so I pray that you'd set us free from it, Lord. Help us to recognize that Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things are for, the one through whom all good things are by. Help us to see that, Lord, and to rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.